Last week we began uh, a new chapter in our Confession of Faith, which was chapter 22, which deals with the subject of religious worship and the Sabbath day. And we talked last time about the importance and the significance of worship, that it is that for which we were created. And so there's no activity that we do that is more important than engaging in the worship of God. And so I passed out the outline. We looked at the six major points that are covered uh, in this chapter, the regulative principle of worship in paragraph one, the proper object of worship in paragraph two, the place of prayer in worship, paragraphs three and four, the substance of worship, paragraph five, the location of worship, paragraph six, and the appointed day of worship, paragraphs seven and eight. Now, what we want to do together today, then, is having reviewed the chapter last week to begin to examine in detail uh, the statements that are contained in the first paragraph dealing with the regulative principle of worship and then attempt to prove and demonstrate those from the Word of God. Now, <clears throat> when we talk about the regulative principle of worship, which is the subject of paragraph one, what we're talking about is worship is regulated. Okay, so when we talk about the regulative principle, we're just talking about the principle that regulates worship. Now, your driving is regulated, and it's regulated by traffic laws, right? And there's signs along the road that regulate how fast you can go, uh, where you can turn, etc. Well, <clears throat> in the same way, there are laws governing worship. And just like you're not free to drive any old way you please, you're not free to worship any old way you please. Your worship is as regulated as your moral behavior is. So just like, you know, one of the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not kill, and, and you're regulated from, from not killing people, and, and another commandment says, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother, you're obligated to honor father and mother. So there's certain things in your moral behavior that you're required to do and certain things in your moral behavior you're forbidden to do. And in the same way with worship, there's certain things that you are required to do as acts of worship and then there are things you are forbidden to do as acts of worship. And of course, we don't write the traffic laws for ourselves or make up our own mind how we would like to drive but rather that's imposed upon us by the civil magistrate, the superior authority. And so it is with worship. Uh, God himself is the one who determines and decides uh, how we are to worship, what we are to do in worship, and what we are not to do in worship. And so worship is not a free-for-all that we can uh, practice and carry out any old way that we please. Um, and so the question arises, well, why do we do what we do in the church? Uh, why do we have the kind of worship we have in this church? Uh, and the reason for that is not that the pastor decided that would be the way to do it or that would be a good thing to do, but because it appears in the Word of God that this is what we ought to be doing. Uh, it also appears in the Word of God that we ought to be doing nothing else but this, and therefore that's the activity that we engage in. Now, with reference to the fact that our worship is regulated, the fact that it's regulated is in the first paragraph declared to be 
revealed by nature, the duty to worship is revealed by nature, but the proper method of worship is revealed by scripture. So nature teaches us there's a God and we need to worship this God, but nature doesn't tell us how. And that's why when you see people who do not have the revelation of scripture, uh, they wind up worshiping God in all kinds of very strange ways. Uh, for example, at, at the most extreme would be like the Inca and the Aztec cultures, where they would engage in human sacrifice as acts of worship to God. Because, you know, the light of nature taught them that there's a God and that they need to worship him. But the trouble is they worshiped him according to their own perverted, depraved imaginations about how they thought he would want to be worshipped. And, of course, that worship involved all sorts of grievous uh, perversions. So uh, while nature teaches us there's a God and teaches us we need to worship that God, Scripture alone provides us with a proper method as to how that worship is to be conducted. Well, let's read together then paragraph 1, and then we'll begin to look at the first point that's made in it. It says, The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. So we see there the focus of worship, the nature of worship, and the intensity of worship. It says, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. That is, he's the one who decides we don't. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, nor, implied, under any visible representations, or in any way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So what they do is they say he's only to be worshipped in the way Scripture provides and all other ways are excluded. And we'll get into that in future lessons, God willing. Well, today we want to talk about the fact that the duty to worship is revealed by nature. So hopefully we'll cover the first half of this paragraph, paragraph one. Now, <clears throat> the paragraph specifically says the light of nature shows there is a God. So the reason why we worship is because nature itself, even if we never had a Bible and never saw a Bible or never saw a miracle or never saw Jesus or never heard of any of the prophets, the light of nature alone teaches us that there is a God. So nature reveals, first of all, God's existence. Turn your Bible, please, to Psalm 19. And we'll look at verses 1 through verse 4. In Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, and that's the sky, uh, shows his handiwork, parallelism there. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice 
is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. So what uh, the psalmist does here is he presents nature as having a voice. And specifically here he's talking about the stellar heavens. He's talking about the sun, the moon, the stars, the clouds, the atmosphere, okay, that is over us. When you go out and you look up at night or you go out and look up in the day, the things you see speak to you. They convey a message to you. And the message that they convey is that there is a God and that this God is glorious. And it says that these things are speaking. And there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That is, over all the world, at any time in history, among any people group, no matter what language they speak, they all understand the language of nature. And nature says, specifically, there is a God, and He is glorious, and this is His handiwork. So nature teaches there's a God, and that God is glorious. Now, a second passage we want to look at is Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. In Romans 1, verses 19, it says, we'll start out at verse 18. Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or who hold down, is the idea, the truth in unrighteousness. Now, you say, well, how did these people know the truth? Uh, you know, verse 18 is saying they had the truth and when they got it, they suppressed it. They refused to face it, to accept it, to deal with it. Uh, to interact with it, to respond to it, and they just buried it. And, and the question arises, where, where did they get the truth from that they're suppressing? And here's the answer, verse 19 and 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. So, first of all, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Okay? So, within the human heart, within the human mind, within the human conscience, there's an awareness and a knowledge of God. Now, why is that? Answer, because we're created in the image of God. And because we're created in the image of God and we have a moral conscience, every man is born with the innate knowledge of the existence of God. And so there are no true atheists. There are theists who deny there's a God and who suppress the knowledge of God, but everyone is born hardwired with the knowledge of God. Now, the second thing that's asserted in verse 20 is that the invisible things of him, that is of God, as a result of the creation of the world, are clearly seen. And they are understood by the things that have been made. And what is understood? 
even his, that is God's, eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, notice, because that when they knew God. Notice it says, they knew God. How did they know God? They knew God from the creation of the world, and they knew God because God had manifested himself to them in them. So the internal knowledge that comes, hardwired into us because we're made in the image of God with a conscience, and the external uh, evidence of the natural creation, the things that have been made, the earth, the sky, the stars, the animals, the trees, the grass, the ocean, all of these things speak to us that there is a God, and it says specifically that they know God. Now, what did they do with that knowledge? They suppressed it, okay? When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, it says in verse 21. Um, neither were thankful. Okay, so that's how they suppressed or held down the truth in unrighteousness. So the point is, is that nature reveals that there is a God. And the scripture bears witness over and over again that through just a simple reflection on my own internal condition in nature, my awareness of right and wrong, the fact that I have a conscience, and my external observation of the world around me is more than enough to convince um, anyone who is honest with the evidence that there is a God. Now, not only does nature reveal that there is a God, but it goes on to reveal that this God, as our confession says, has lordship and sovereignty over all. This God is not just a God that exists, but this God is a God who has lordship and sovereignty. That is, he has authority over everything and he has control over everything. Clearly, the God who made us and the God who made the natural creation is the God who has authority and the God who has uh, sovereignty or power over us. Now, there's a zillion passages we could look at. Let's just look at three quickly. We'll cruise uh, through the book of Psalms. Psalm 50 and verse 6. In Psalm 50, in verse 6, God says, And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself, Selah. So it says here specifically, the heavens declare what about God, his righteousness, the fact that God is judge himself. Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10 Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10, it says, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great, and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. So here we see very clearly um, the declaration that all the nations looking upon the works of God, recognizing 
the authority of God that, and the sovereignty of God that is a result of that come and worship the Lord. They glorify the Lord's names because they see he's great and he's done wondrous things and that he's God alone. So when you look at the stellar heavens, you look at the complexity of the creation, you look at your own being, you realize, you know, there's somebody way bigger than me who made all this stuff and who is the source of all of this. And so it moves us to recognize his authority and it moves us to submit to him in worship. And then Psalm 97, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> it says in Psalm 97, verses 1 through 7, The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlighten the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. So once again, um, the lightnings... Uh, the hills, uh, the heavens, all these things declare the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the authority of God, and all of these things move us then to bow down and to worship God. And so clearly God's sovereignty and God's lordship over all is manifested by the fact that, um, for example, we have a conscience, our conscience sits in judgment upon us, it either condemns us or excuses us. It tells us that there is one who sits in judgment upon us. Uh, we see that uh, in the affairs of men, uh, there is sowing, there is reaping. Uh, we see um, in the natural creation, uh, when we look at its immensity, we realize someone bigger than that had to make all of that. He has tremendous power he has tremendous um, uh, authority uh, to be able to bring that or to call that into existence. And then the third thing that nature reveals to us is not only God's existence and God's authority, but also God's character. It goes on in our confession to say, who has lordship and sovereignty over all, who is just, good, and doeth good unto all, and is therefore... To be worshipped. So nature also reveals to us the justice of God, uh, the goodness of God uh, that he has towards all people. Um, Psalm 97 and verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness and the people see his glory. So what did the heavens declare? Something about God's character. They declare his righteousness. And then Psalm 145 Verses 9 through 12. It says, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power, to make known unto the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. So what we see 
and uh, we'll see this in Psalm 104 if we have time to get to it, is that the way God manages the natural creation and the way he makes provision to supply the need of every creature in that natural creation shows his goodness. And um, these things uh, display also uh, his righteousness, that he is just, um, in that he manages things in a balanced and in an appropriate fashion. Uh, finally, Acts 14 and verse 17, the book of Acts, chapter 14. Paul hears at Lystra, he heals a man um, who is lame, crippled from his mother's womb. And the people come out to worship him and he says, don't worship me. And then in verse 17, he says, of God... Acts 14, 17, Nevertheless, he, God, left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So nature reveals the existence of God. Nature reveals the authority and sovereignty of God over that, that creation. And nature reveals the fact that God is good in the way in which he manages that creation. So when we see there's a God, this God has authority, this God is good, then that should move us to worship him. It, sh it obliges us to worship him. So our confession then goes on and talks about the nature of this worship that should arise just out of an awareness and an understanding of the natural creation. It says that he is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served. And then it tells us about the intensity of this worship that is to be done with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. So the nature of this worship that should arise just from an observation of the natural creation and an awareness of the image of God within myself is that I would fear God, love God, praise God, call upon God, trust in God, and serve God. And I would do that as the central organizing principle of my life and as the major focus of my energy and time. Now, <clears throat> there's a number of passages, once again, that speak to this issue. For example, Psalm 62 and verse 8. It says, Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. So God, of course, is to be trusted in. Jeremiah chapter 10, and verse 7. <clears throat> it says, Who will not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain, for as much as among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. 
So he said, among the nations, I mean, even without biblical revelation, who among them will not fear God? And so the light of nature teaches us that God is to be trusted, that God is to be feared. In Jeremiah 33, in verse 9, It says, and it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I procure unto it. So God says, basically, uh, what I do in the earth, um, among all the nations are going to hear of it, and their response is or ought to be that they would fear and tremble for all the goodness and the prosperity that I procure in my providential management of my dealings with the nation of, of Judah. He speaks of it in, in verse 7 there. And then Psalm 150, verse 6, very familiar passage. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. And so if you're breathing, that breath that God has given to you is given to you in order to be used to praise the Lord. So um, Psalm 150 just talks about the responsibility we have to praise the Lord. And our very breath that we have should provoke us to give thanks to the Lord. And then finally, Psalm 72, verses 11 and 17 Psalm 72, verse 11 and 17. It says in verse 11, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. And then in verse 17, His name shall endure forever, His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him and all nations shall call him blessed. Now, <clears throat> some of these verses in their context are talking about people who have seen special revelation, but the general thrust of them is simply this, is that this business of worshiping and serving and trusting in and fearing and loving, praising God is not just for those who have received special revelation. It's for all nations. It's for all peoples. And as all created beings experience the providences of God in their life, as they experience uh, the observation of the nature around them, both the stellar and the terrestrial, as they look within and they see the image of God and the sense of moral uh, responsibility and conscience within, that all of these things should move them to fear God and love God and praise God and call upon God and trust in God and serve God. Now, <clears throat> what role and position and place should God take in their life? Well, it goes on to talk about not only the nature of this worship, but the intensity when it says it's with all the heart and soul and mind and strength that we have. Now, you recall that one of the one of the scribes came to Jesus and says, Master, what's the first and great commandment? And he quoted right out of Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. 
He says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. Okay? That's the first and great commandment. And, of course, that should be the focus and core and central activity and purpose of our life, and everything else is subordinate and peripheral to that. So, <clears throat> the point is this, is that <clears throat> wherever you go in human history, wherever you go across cultures, and wherever you go throughout the world, universally, you see exactly this playing out. Cultures are built around religion. And culture is just religion externalized. And so <clears throat> people throughout time and history and culture and geography have always recognized that there is a God that this God has authority and sovereignty over us, that this God has a, a standard of justice and morality and right and wrong, and therefore we need to worship this God and we need to worship this God as the central organizing principle of our life. And what our confession asserts in the first half of paragraph one is amply demonstrated and played out in reality uh, in the human condition all throughout history, across culture and in every geographical location, that these things the confession asserts are true because men universally and everywhere recognize them as true and carry them out in their life and behavior. And so um, that's why it doesn't matter where you go, you always find a religion. You always find a form of worship, and you always find that society built around that religion and that form of worship. Now, there's a final passage I want to read to you which kind of summarizes all of this, and that's Psalm 104. In Psalm 104, what we have here is um, a psalm of praise for God's creation. And what there is, is there's a description here of what you observe in natural creation and in the natural world, and then the response that occurs to that. Notice Psalm 104, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Now how in the world did he arrive at those conclusions? and with that charge to his soul. Now he provides the answer. Who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks upon the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever, Thou coverest it with a deep sea as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys into the place where thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. He sendeth the springs into the valleys which runs among the hills. 
They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. Notice what he's doing. He's just describing the natural creation, right? He waters the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted. Where the birds make their nests, as for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats, and the rocks for the conies. He appoints the moon for seasons, the sun knows his going down. Thou makest darkness, and it is night, wherein are all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their meat from God. The sun arises, they gather themselves together and lay down in their dens. Man goeth forth into his work and to his labor until the evening. Now notice the response, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So he begins to respond with worship and praise. Now he goes on with his description, verse 25. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These all wait on thee, that thou may givest them their meat in due season. That thou givest them, they gather, thou openest thy hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled, thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the faith of the earth, face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever, the Lord shall rejoice in his works. He looketh on the earth, and it trembleth, he touches the hills, and they smoke. Notice the response, verse 33. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will praise to my God, sing praise to my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Praise ye the Lord. Now what this psalm is talking about is all that the confession expresses in the first half of paragraph one. Here's someone who looks out on the natural creation and says, praise the Lord. Clearly, God made this. God is exalted over this. God is managing this. I owe God my worship and my praise. My fear, my honor, my obedience. My whole being. So... The confession is correct when it says the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. And Psalm 104 takes all of that and it summarizes it right here. Now, this is the reason why, and I've heard people say this to me on several occasions, they say, you know, nature is my church. I really feel close to God when I go out and I'm way out in the woods and I hear the birds and I see the sky and there's no people around and it's like I'm in a cathedral. Now, and they say, I don't need to go to church. You know, all those people and all that doctrine and stuff, that just confuses me. I feel close to God when I'm out in nature. 
Now, while we recognize there's fallacies to that, there's a huge amount of truth to that. Okay? And the truth is simply what our confession is affirming, that when you go out and you get face-to-face -face with the natural creation, you come face-to-face -face with the handiwork of God. And even a fallen, unsaved mind recognizes the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are, are, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even His eternal power in Godhead. So you go out in nature and you see God's power. You see His deity. Okay? You see His handiwork. You see His glory. You see His righteousness and wisdom in the way in which He's managed all of this. You see the glory and you see the beauty, even though it's fallen under the curse, there's still a lot there. And you see, and your inner heart says, you know, there's a God. And that's the reason why they, they feel that way when they go out there. And, and they should. That's a very natural and proper response. To go outside and sit on a still night on a mountaintop somewhere and stare at the stars and say, you know, there's a God. Now, natural revelation isn't enough. <laughs> we need special revelation, but what they're feeling is exactly what the scriptures is bearing witness to, and it needs to be affirmed that what you're feeling is genuine and real and valid and true, but there's more. You need to pay attention to special revelation because all this natural revelation teaches you that there's a God he has lordship and sovereignty over all. He's to be loved, feared, worshipped, honored, praised, and served with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But exactly how you do that and get reconciled to God, you'll never learn from the trees and the stars and the streams and the fish. You'll only learn that from the book. And so nature is designed to lead to special revelation, not be a substitute or a replacement for it. So let us never denigrate the significance and importance and value of nature bringing men to God. It was designed to do that. And uh, that's why people need to get out of the concrete jungle and get out into nature. Um, there's something, I, I was just reading a book the other day by, by a guy who sails. And, and, and this guy is as unsaved as Job's turkey. But, you know, he said, when you get out there in the ocean, it's just you and your boat in the ocean he said, everything seems so pure. And I thought, right, you get it. And so um, I was reading about another guy who's also unsaved. And he says, when I get out there, he says, I feel close to him, capital H-I-M. Now he didn't go on and say what that all consisted of. But, you know, the point is, is they're getting the message. And we need to encourage that message. All right, well, our time is long gone. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for the natural creation you've given to us. Thank you, Father, that the light of nature shows us that there is a God. And Father, we pray that you would help us to follow the light of nature as far as we can and as much as is possible. But thank you, Lord, that you didn't just give us the light of nature. You gave us your prophets. You gave us your scriptures, and most of all, you gave us your Son. Thank you, Father, for that special revelation. We ask, Lord, that we might truly 
glorify and worship you as you have manifested yourself in us and around us. But Father, may we further sharpen that worship through the book that you have given to us. Lord, help us to uh, be a blessing to others as they revel in the glory of nature and, we, and, and use it as a springboard for evangelism. Bless, Father, now our time together in our worship in the next hour. In Jesus' name, amen.